Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. If you are fighting foreclosure, keep your eye on the prima facie case, the case the claimant needs to prove. Don't make it your own. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, October 7, 2021. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. I did that intro because I just got a case sent to me um, involving a homeowner that I think might have been able to win their case, but they alleged forgery and they alleged fraud, which then put them in a position where they had to prove it, and they couldn't prove it. Uh, without the uh, cooperation of the other side, which, of course, as anyone knows who has litigated these cases, the other side doesn't respond to any direct questions, uh, even if, uh, if a court order is issued. So... In the end, the, the judge decided that the homeowner should lose because they hadn't proven forgery or fraud, and the question of whether or not the claimant was a real viable claimant with an actual claim, it, it, it looked from the case like that, that issue was never even reached. So that's why I let in with that. I want to thank everyone again for the support and encouraging testimonials for the two-hour webinar on uh, examination and challenge of assignments of mortgage. Uh, the recorded version is available on LendingLies.com, and the follow-up conference information will be announced shortly for the participants in that webinar. Tonight, we have James Ackley coming back as a guest. He is an accomplished trial lawyer from West Palm Beach and a contributor to my work, um, which includes information that I've included on the blog, this broadcast, and other things that, that I've done. He's back with us to broaden the discussion that he and I started last week. His telephone number for those uh, who are interested and have made uh, some inquiries about that is 833, and then it's, it spells out F-L-A-A-T-T-Y. The numbers are 833, um, am I getting this right? 
352-2889. Ah, that's what I got wrong, because I, I knew I was missing a digit. <laughs> In the, so, okay, his number is 833-FLA-ATTY or 833-352-2889. I got it. In the last show, we talked generally about how the promissory note morphs or changes from a promise to pay a debt into a security that is simply an agreement between someone who does not own the debt and someone uh, who will get paid because of a security scheme. The contract that is involved between the investment bank and the investor involves a certificate. And the promise to pay morphs from a promise that the homeowner made to pay the party named on the note and mortgage and identified as a lender. It morphs from that to to dropping all of that, and it's now an unsecured promise that is not um, uh, guaranteed or secured with a mortgage to pay money to the investor without a maturity date, without any promise of principal, uh, other than on a formula, which is just between the investor and the investment bank, which does business under the name of a trust. So as James tells it, the note is transformed into a security that is essentially irrelevant in any current foreclosure case because that certificate that certificate is not and cannot be secured by a mortgage. At least not one from the homeowner. I mean, I suppose the investment bank could uh, uh, put up collateral, but that wouldn't be the homeowner's property because the investment bank doesn't own the homeowner's property. I would add that current law requires as a condition precedent that the claimant has paid value for the underlying obligation, assuming there is an underlying obligation. You can see my blog for why I added that comment and Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code adopted in all U.S. jurisdictions verbatim. So I asked James to come back tonight because he's on the front line of litigation and as a competent trial attorney, he knows a lot about the frustrating pitched battles in foreclosure cases. Welcome back, James, and thanks for coming back. I'm really pleased to be here. Neil, thanks very much for having me. So just to get started, you and I exchanged some emails. Let's just get started with why should everyone understand the elements of a prima facie case first before they do anything else? Yeah, I think that's a really important point in foreclosure today. And it comes back to that whole point where the banks, uh, or not necessarily the banks, but the plaintiffs in these cases, constantly try to convince judges that this is just a, quote, simple, close quote, foreclosure case. And they try to 
list out the elements of what they perceive as to be the elements of a prima facie case for a foreclosure case, a note endorsed in blank or in, uh, specifically to the plaintiff, um, uh, a, a default letter, um, a, a mortgage uh, securing the note, uh, and the parties, the defendants are parties to the mortgage and the note, and they say we should win. They, they, they try to get the court to believe that there's nothing else required. Even, even in the case when they have assignments of mortgage, for instance, to a, an entirely different entity, they often will tell the court, well, the, the mortgage follows the note. It really doesn't matter. As long as we have the note, we've made our prima facie case and we win. Well, that's just simply not the case if they look at the reality of foreclosure today, especially in these cases where we have business investment trusts, where the parties have, as, as you've just described, Neil, converted the note into a security that cannot be secured by a mortgage under Article 9 of the UCC. There's a yeah, great just listening to you, here. Just, just listening to you, it, it occurs to me that what they're trying to do, and I guess they've succeeded in doing in many cases, is foreclose on the foreclose on the note, not the mortgage. Absolutely true. I think that's absolutely the case. Yes. And obviously, current law does not allow anything like that. No, it certainly shouldn't. Well, it certainly shouldn't. And, certainly and it's again and again something they do. And, and I think part of this is, is <clears throat> it's not the defense bar's fault so much as it's our culture where the vast majority of foreclosure cases aren't even challenged. So the, right. the plaintiff's attorneys are used to just getting their way. They walk in, they foreclose, give out these these basic elements that they perceive to be the prima facie case, the judge signs the paperwork, and they're done. The vast majority of cases go for the plaintiff because the homeowners don't know that they have a right to challenge it, or, or, or they, they feel intimidated and don't bother or don't try to challenge it. And it's really tragic because right. a great number Last of those I cases looked, had the homeowners only thought about it, they could, have, they could have effectively defended. Last I looked... 96% of homeowners who are told they are in foreclosure do absolutely nothing except leave the house. It's just tragic. And, and it is tragic. It is tragic for everybody because if there were, because my experience is from just, you know, being an attorney and being an advisor to attorneys uh, all over the country, is that somewhere around two-thirds of the people who actually litigate the thing down to the mat, as they say, come out with a favorable result, with either a judgment in favor of the homeowner or a, a confidential settlement where they're not allowed to talk about it. If more people would contest foreclosures there'd be more of those cases and word would get around. But so far, uh, I guess it's about two decades now, uh, the other side has been uh, uh, winning the uh, public relations battle. Everybody thinks Absolutely they can do true. it. Absolutely true. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, yeah, go ahead. we haven't even addressed the fact that in many of those cases where the homeowners don't just roll over and give up their house, even in the process of the litigation, they work out 
modifications or loss mitigation uh, 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 packages that leave them with their house and they're able to continue um, with their house and, and not losing it, which, which is a huge deal, or at least coming out with a positive result where they, they have the ability to find another house uh, to replace one. But the, the best answer, of course, is when they keep their house through some, either, either through a settlement with the bank um, or winning their case outright or even a loss mitigation package. So just to recap from last week, you seem to have come to the same conclusion I have about whether enforcement of the mortgage is possible in the context of claims of securitization of debt, regardless of whether those claims are true or false. Like me, you've come to the conclusion that the foreclosure remedy, the forced sale of the home, is not legally possible, right? It can't be. Not under Article 9 of the UCC and, and Article 8. You and, and once it becomes a security, Article 3 doesn't apply. 673 in Florida doesn't apply. Um, it falls to Article 8 and Article 9, and uh, under Article 9, the mortgage cannot be a lien on a security. It's not allowed. It's not possible. Um, so there may be uh, some sort of a remedy in pursuing the debt. Uh, I'm not saying there is or isn't, but there clearly is not or should not be a mortgage foreclosure because the mortgage cannot secure that, that lien or cannot secure that, that note any longer. Yeah, I agree with you. And frankly, I don't know how many years you're doing this, but I, you know, I've been doing it for 45 years. Uh, I've never seen anything that happened in the in the real legal world where where something like this has occurred, where the uh, courts are bending over backwards to allow what is to them essentially an unknown claimant uh, get the remedy of foreclosure. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I think it's because there's a lot of lawyers out there and pro se litigants who don't know how to litigate a case. But, uh, but the, the other side is that the more, as you say, they, they roll over and just give up their houses and don't uh, contest, the more sure that judges are, they're just people sitting on the bench, that the result here is inevitable and due process, discovery, and things like that are something they have to get through, but it's not something they believe in in these cases because of the old phrase, well, you got the loan, didn't you? And, you know, right. the follow-up questions to that, like, well, who do you owe it to? Well, that's never thought about. Right. And, I mean, let's be honest, people. Most families, maybe one, maybe two mortgages in a lifetime uh, you have experience with. And so we really aren't, <clears throat> excuse me, we really aren't indoctrinated or, or educated as to what to expect after the closing on the house. And so when some families get a notice in the mail from their lender saying, their, 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 uh, their servicer saying, hey, we've transferred this, this note and mortgage to 
uh, servicing of this note and mortgage to another company. Expect company B to start uh, servicing your loan. You'll have to pay your payments to company B. Well, that's a surprise to many. And, but it, and they, and, and, and most people, of course, go along with that and take care of it. But, but what, what happens, for instance, when they get a letter from somebody they don't know or a, a statement from somebody they don't, they've never heard from before saying, hey, we're taking over servicing on your loan. Well, why on earth should they believe that? I mean, where do they have confirmation from the servicer that they've been with uh, that this new company is taking over? And should they just trust them and start sending their monthly mortgage checks to this stranger who sent them a a, a mailer that looks just like junk mail? Um, Well, that was my next topic. That's that's my next topic. The judges never ask about this. They, They don't get it. Right. So the question is, what should the homeowner do, or what should the lawyer be advising a homeowner to do when they receive a notice from the uh, from someone who claims to be a lender or a servicer or a successor, somebody they've never heard of before, uh, claiming that the uh, that there's a, a, a new sheriff in town. What should they be doing? Right. Well, I, I, I honestly think that it's important that, and, and this some, some clients do this really well, and, and some clients don't do it very well at all, but I think that they should keep copies of all correspondence back and forth organized and in one place, and they should immediately contact the servicer they've been sending their checks to up until now to confirm whether or not this new party is, in fact, a new servicer on their loan. Um, and if, if not, they, they need to confirm where they should be sending their checks and how they should be sending their money and um, maintaining the schedule that they're committed to on the note. Um, I don't know, you Neil, but I've actually had cases where clients have fallen into this confusion and they end up getting foreclosed on because of the confusion arising from this transfer from one servicer to another. Typically, they should get a goodbye letter from the existing servicer telling them a new a new sheriff is in town. But without that, how are they supposed to just rely on this, 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 this correspondence from somebody that this, they don't know from Adam? And the courts, I don't think, recognize that this is a big deal, and they, don't t- they take it for granted that they should, should just start sending their checks, and, and that isn't how it should go. No, because it means that anybody could send them a letter saying, I'm the new servicer, and start getting the payments and even if the debt is legitimate, which I have some issues with, but let's assume that it is legitimate, they're not going to get any credit for it, and they will be foreclosed even though they thought they were current because they were Absolutely. paying the wrong person. This, this, opens the, this opens the door wide for what they call moral hazard, the, uh, uh, the ability, and it's happening especially out in California that I know of, the ability for someone to just get knowledge of a claim or debt or account to step in and say, well, it's transferred to me now, you got to pay me, that's a popular scam now. And what homeowners, yep. are, what homeowners are getting from what I'm seeing are – unsigned papers 
that that purport to announce that there's been a change in the owner or uh, right to service their loan. They're not getting that notice, as you so uh, um, well point out. They're not getting that notice from the prior party that they did know about. And my recollection, I haven't looked this up actually, and I should do so. My recollection is that a debtor has no obligation to make payments to anybody new unless the prior party that he acknowledges is a creditor tells him to do that. It's not when the new party tells them. It's when the old party tells them. Absolutely, and it should be that way. There's got to be some formalized authorization of the new servicer. Without that, there's a real problem because how are they supposed to know whether the person's legit or not? Anybody off the street could start. I've got a printer that prints color. I could start sending out statements uh, to people saying I'm their new servicer. And yeah, what people would are doing it. Yeah, nuts. People, people are doing it. And the the other thing is that in litigation, I don't know what luck you've had, but without intensive investigation by you know some private investigator or forensic guy, you don't see the servicing agreement. And the reason it apparently is from the few servicing agreements I've seen, there's nothing in there that says that this company is going to receive and disperse funds. And if there's nothing in there that says they're going to receive and disperse funds, then why can, why is a report that is issued or brought to court by one of their representatives why is that considered a business record of a transaction that they never were actually involved with? In fact, Neil, I take that a step further. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I can't list them. I don't know. I, I've lost count of the number of cases where the plaintiff has brought in powers of attorney supposedly authorizing a servicer to act and then not included the servicing agreement, which is integral to the terms of the agreement and when we try discovery when we try to get copies of those servicing agreements they fight us tooth and nail to keep us from getting them because they the last thing they want is those agreements brought forward in the, in the court right because it basically shows that all these people are rent-a-name companies um, that are not actually performing anything and I happen to know that as a matter of fact in terms of having received information from sources that have to stay anonymous. But as a journalist for the blog, I have received positive, definite, explicit confirmation of that. So the, 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 but the question is, and I think, and, and you and I differ slightly, and I'm really not sure who's right about this. I take the position that 
um, for the most part, filing affirmative defenses is pointless. Now, I agree that there's plenty of grounds for filing an affirmative defense. But I think that an aggressive discovery campaign is worth more than making positive allegations that you then have to prove. So where do you stand on that? I do differ a little bit. Um, I think my experience has been that I found that the affirmative defenses give me license to raise the issues in trial, in the course of trial. And absent those affirmative defenses, I've been, I face significant opposition to raising issues that are critical or that have come up in discovery. But I think you and I are on exactly the same page when it comes to the issue of discovery and getting the stuff that we're requesting is so difficult uh, because they don't want us to know that, for instance, the named plaintiff never sees a penny. Um, They don't want us to know that everything is being honchoed by the servicer. Um, And they don't want us to be able to show the court that there, there is no evidence of value in exchange for the note and mortgage uh, from one party to the other, and so they shouldn't be able to enforce, or they shouldn't be entitled to enforce the note and mortgage uh, because there's been no value exchanged under under Article Nine. So, yeah, no, I think that uh, I, I do differ in that I do think, from my practice, my strategy is to try to get um, the key affirmative defenses that are identifiable and amend as needed in the course of the litigation as new issues arise. But I do try to, to uh, define the affirmative defenses as well as I can in, in my answers in affirmative defenses. But I do understand your approach, and I think that makes a lot of sense. We're, we're actually not that far apart. The discovery is key. No, we're not. We're not. The, the, uh, uh, I, I find that you know, what you're saying is certainly what would be considered by most lawyers as better practice than what I'm saying. Um, because I, I'm taking a my approach takes a little bit bigger risk, even though it achieves something that you you don't achieve if you file the affirmative defense. So right. if 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 you get screwed on discovery, which does happen, then you're left naked in the wind. And you know I've lost a couple of cases that way, um, but. Uh, I certainly uh, get your point, and I'm I'm wondering. We only have a couple of minutes left. Um, you you mentioned that the uh, uh, in our email discussion, you, you you mentioned that the fight over the business record exemption is a is a real ground battle uh how are you handling that now well i i think it's um i don't want to to come out and say anything negative about the court system or the florida courts i will say that I'm not sure that the rules applied to business records in foreclosure are the same as in other civil litigation. And I don't think that the documents that come in in foreclosure cases would come in in the vast majority of civil litigation. 
Right. And that's because I think that the, the business records exception is given an entirely different reading for foreclosure than it is in other civil litigation. And it shouldn't be that way. I, yeah, don't think it I agree with way. you. I agree 100% with, exactly with the way you said it, too, that in, in any other civil case, these records would not be allowed. But Absolutely they are, not. They're routinely allowed now. So we're I mean, running out of time at, again. Let me... Let me make sure that everybody has your phone number uh, because I forgot to do that last week, too. Um, the number that we have for you is 833-F-L-A-A-T-T-Y, which is 833-352-2889. James Ackley, a very fine accomplished trial lawyer from West Palm Beach and a great contributor to this broadcast. Thank you for your appearance tonight, and I'm sure you will be back with us, or I hope you'll be back with us soon. Thanks very much, Neil. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Great. We'll see you all next week. Have a good night. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.